What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. President Trump says he will not participate in a virtual debate. Joe Biden says he will take questions from voters. This is the debate commission says next week's Miami debate has to go virtual. The fallout. Meanwhile, a total recap and spinning it forward of last night's VP debate. Lots to get through. All of that, plus more volatility in the markets and the latest on a fiscal stimulus bill. Or I guess we should stop calling it that. An airline package bill. Let's start. Let's start with the debate. And no, I'm not talking about the one here in Salt Lake City last night. The one next week in Miami. Did you see all the drama? So this morning, I'm standing outside of the University of Utah getting ready to recap for Tom, John, and Lisa on Bloomberg Surveillance about Senator Harris and Vice President Pence. And then all of a sudden, I get this statement in my inbox on my Bloomberg terminal email. And it says, from the, from the Committee on Presidential Debates, next week's debate in Miami is virtual. I look up at our producer, David Sutcherman, and Matt Tomlin, our, 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 uh, our, our photographer, and we're, are we going to Miami? Are we not going to Miami? Next thing we know, President Trump calls into Maria Bartiroma on Fox Business Network for like a 50-minute interview via telephone, and he says he's not participating in the debate. He calls it a quote-unquote giant waste of time. Then Joe Biden releases a statement and says that it's on, but then there's another statement that says he's going to take questions from voters. So much confusion. It goes ping pong back and forth. President Trump says he wants to punt another week. Joe Biden says no. And this is where I say, get me Rick Davis. Because Rick Davis is someone who can sort through all of the noise, all of the clutter. Uh, and there's a lot of it today. He's a partner at Stone Court Capital, former campaign manager for John McCain's 2008 presidential campaign and a Bloomberg contributor. Rick, Rick, I don't even know where to begin. But like, try to help me put this in perspective with all of the drama between the two campaigns totally stepping on one another for last night's performance, and now they're talking about Miami. You're, you're, you're creating an awful high expectation for me to sort out something like this. I, I feel like you're still in debate mode trying to convince everybody I'm a terrific debater right before you crush me. Um, look, I mean, first of all, Dealing with the debate commission is dysfunctional on a good day, right? They have the unenviable 
task of making plans for presidential debates before we even know who the nominees, the participants, are going to be. And they set rules, they pick locations, they recruit donors, and they, they, they go through a lot to, to get to the point where they go and meet with the campaigns, at which point the campaigns say, why the heck would we go to Utah? There's no yeah. campaign event in Utah. Why would we take a day out to do that? Why do we want this moderator? Why do we like these, these rules? And, and so they, they create these MOUs that are painstakingly uh, negotiated between three parties, two campaigns and the debate commission. And, and, and frankly, this morning, the debate commission did something that I was shocked by. They unilaterally made a decision to change the format of a debate, making it virtual, makes total common sense to everybody listening in, but they obviously didn't get agreement from the two campaigns before they did it. And that is the fundamental requirement of the commission, that the campaigns have to be partners with them. And so now we've got a mess. We're seeing a negotiation take place in the bright click lights of the media. So the American public actually gets to see something they never get to see. Uh, really... Making sausage. It, <laughs> it tastes good when it's fried, but it sure is nasty when it's made. Well, Rick, I mean, and, and, and to be honest, so much of the coverage from last night was a collective sigh of relief in many ways because, you know, you can, we can talk about who won and, and the policies and, and we'll, play, we'll dissect all of it over the course of the show. But for the most part, it was a much more better, well-received debate than last week's. You could hear everybody talk. They, and for the most part, people were, you know, it, it, was, it was more of a traditional format debate. And I think that the, the, there was a lot of praise for both of, uh, or all the parties involved, I guess all three parties involved, in terms of respecting the rules and whatnot. But that morning, literally that morning, now, as you, as you just mentioned, they're, they're negotiating in real time. And it's, it's really, really perplexing why play this out, folks, four years from now, eight years from now, people would take the debate commission at their word. Am I wrong, Rick? Well, uh, we've been trying as campaigns and campaign managers to figure out a way to not deal with the debate commission for decades. Wow. Uh, in 2008, when I was running the McCain campaign, my negotiator for the debates was Lindsey Graham, and the Obama negotiator was Rahm Emanuel. And we got all together and said, why do we need the debate commission? We're, we're negotiating the rules. We want to pick the sites, you know, places that are actually meaningful to the, to the campaign, not just to donors. And, 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 and yet we didn't do it. We didn't go rogue, uh, at least not in that instance, uh, <laughs> because all the logistics were too much to bear, right? You know, it's expensive to do this, and we weren't going to use campaign dollars. So, um, so it's an anomaly, right? I mean, you, you, but like the debate commission could, should never have said anything publicly until at which point in time they literally had signatures dry on the page from a discussion with both parties saying it's okay to make this virtual. I mean, everything we do is virtual, so it's a little surprising to me, frankly, that, that Donald Trump said no to it. That's a whole nother topic. But the commission should never have stepped on their own debate press first thing in the morning, uh, you know, after a perfectly good debate that they desperately needed after the debacle of a week ago. And, 
and and they started this firestorm. So I think in retrospect, people will look back on this year's presidential cycle and really wonder what value add was the debate commission. They 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 didn't do a good job in the first debate, and they stepped on their own successful vice presidential debate by monkeying around with the second and third presidential debates. And I have deep respect for the debate commission and, and the institution that it represents. And of course, I obviously have deep respect for the presidential debates and the vice presidential debate. It is just just a wild story. I, I don't want to take an opinion on, on any of it, um, but I, I do just want to say a wild story just to have these negotiations going in real time. And now just so much uncertainty. And to be candid, if, if you know, here in, Utah, in Salt Lake City, Utah, and, and talking with uh, sources on both of the campaigns, my takeaway from the Trump campaign is that they are all in on turning out the base. So I'm not sure, I'm not sure they view it as politically advantageous or even that it is worthwhile to debate virtually. I, I think that they might be making a calculation based upon the conversations I've had where they're saying, you know what? All of the mess around it will speak to the argument that they're trying to make, Rick, quickly in the minute that we have left of a minute and a half we have left of the institutions, all the political institutions are against us. Do you follow me? Yeah, Kevin, I think you're spot on. I mean, what do you need a debate for if you've already got your supporters lined up and you just need to turn them out? That being said, um, the president loves a theater, right? I mean, he's one of the great theatrical politicians of our time. Whether you like what he's saying or not, you're captivated by it. <laughs> Whether it's the first debate where you're watching a train wreck happen in slow motion or one of his rallies, it, it, it is how he communicates to his base. And when 40 million, 50 million, 70 million people tune in, it's kind of tough not to say yes to that. And so if he's trying to get a bigger turnout of his base, it is one of the few things that he has left in the last four weeks of this campaign to communicate, communicate to tens of millions yeah. of people in one night. And then there's still, I guess, the, uh, the optimist that still exists inside of me that says, doesn't the world, doesn't, don't the American people deserve to know the visions that the two nominees have for the country from policy and geopolitics? You know, there's that part of it too, Rick. Come on, I'm an optimist. Rick Davis, partner at Stonecore Capital. Congratulations on all of your all-star coverage with David Weston and Jeannie Zeno as well. He's the former campaign manager for John McCain's 2008 presidential campaign and Bloomberg contributor, and he has promised to purchase me French fries when I am back in Washington, D.C. Rick, you got always it. a pleasure. And coming up, we're going to check in on what happened in the market markets with uh, Elena Papina, Bloomberg Equity Markets Reporter. What happened in the markets today as Speaker Pelosi and Secretary Mnuchin continue to negotiate an airline package bill? Is it grounded or are they ready for takeoff? I'm headed on the first flight back to D.C. tonight. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. 
So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. So much to get through on the economic data front. And coming up, we're also going to check in with David Welch, who is our uh, Detroit, Michigan Bureau Chief, about that Governor Whitmer story uh, and the FBI making some arrests about, I guess, a plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan. It's a wild story. David's going to walk us through it. Meanwhile, let's go back to the market. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi rebuffed Donald Trump's call to provide aid to airlines without a deal on larger on the larger stimulus package. Uh, she spoke actually on Bloomberg Television today about this. Take a listen to what Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi told my colleague David Weston. Here she is. We want to help the airline workers. There is legislation that we had in the CARES Act, which we hope that we could continue for another six months or so. That expired the end of September. We can do that separately, but we cannot do it unless there's a big bill. So it could be part of a big bill or it could be separate from a big bill from a timing standpoint. That was Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi speaking earlier today to David Weston. Uh, and, and she went on to talk uh, about many, many different things, including the Supreme Court. I'll play for you some of that coming up later. U.S. stocks rose in volatile trading as investors clung to hopes for a stimulus deal despite conflicting signals coming from Capitol Hills and the president. Optimism over corporate deals added to the positive tone, sending the S&P 500 up as much as 0.7%. Treasuries gained, taking the 10-year yields down uh, to below 0.77%, and the dollar weakened slightly against most of the G10 basket, though the euro and the yen were basically unchanged. Joining us now to talk about what happened in the markets today uh, is Elena Papina. She is a Bloomberg equity markets reporter. Elena, thanks for being here. Thanks for coming on the show. What happened in the markets today? Hi, Kevin. As you mentioned, an absolutely crazy day in the S&P 500. Now, stocks are rallying again, and we are now just 4%, less than 4% away from a record high. I um, I want to remind our listeners that that record high was on September 2nd, and that was before an array of concerns about President Donald Trump's health, about the stimulus package, about a number of different factors. So we are less than 4% away from that markets are pricing in that a stimulus package is going to happen at some point. There is not enough evidence at this point that that will happen right now or you know immediately after the election. But markets are in an all-green mode. I'm looking at my Bloomberg terminal. All main sectors are solidly in the green. So it's an actually very solid day for you know, all sectors in the S&P 500. A lot of optimism, mainly about the deal. What did the airline sector do today? I mean, because there's so much talk about airlines. Are they, are they, are they, are investors trading off of every word that Speaker Pelosi tells our David Weston, or, or that President Trump tells Maria Bartiroma? I mean, or, or is there, is there an expectation rather that the airline 
package relief bill will come before the election, or is there still uncertainty around it? Yeah, American Airlines CEO said, you know, the company will have to have a new round of layoffs if they don't receive, you know, the package and the stimulus money as soon as possible. And we could see, Kevin, an immediate reaction in the S&P 500 Airlines Index. So it was trading higher, about 2% higher early in the day. It tumbled to a session low uh, on the concern that, you know, the stimulus package isn't coming anytime soon. Then after Pelosi's remarks, it went back up in the green. So it actually finished the day 1.5% higher, and that's more than the S&P 500's gain, which um, rose 0.8% for the day. So um, airlines and other sectors that focus on economic reopening are actually doing much better right now. They are leading this recovery. So there are definitely a lot of bets that, number one, this stimulus package is coming at some point very soon. Number two, we're not going to see any you know, type of um, you know, lockdown that we had early in the year. So recovery stocks are doing so much better than everyone else at this point. Yeah. Elena Papin is on the line. She is a Bloomberg equity markets reporter. I just also want to note IBM surged after saying it will spin off its infrastructure unit and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Inc. rose after the president said its antibody cocktail was the, quote, key, end quote, to his quick recovery. All right. Uh, another I, I, I am really obsessed with the VIX because <laughs> I want to understand where whether or not the volatility is going to be forecast in the end of November, early December, especially as investors and, and traders try to understand my my neck of the woods in terms of uh, in terms of the presidential debates. There was so much volatility in the rhetoric um, and coming from uh, politics this morning with regards to the debates and whether or not there will be one. Did that do anything to the VIX or did that not make an impact? That did not make too much of an impact, uh, Kevin. And I'm looking at the uh, volatility futures curve. So I'm looking at what investors are pricing in for volatility to be in November, uh, early November, early December, early January, early February. So that curve was a little bit higher uh, on Friday when we, you know, learned the news about Donald Trump's positive coronavirus results. It actually has been going down slightly, you know, first of all, as concern abated about Trump's health, and then as polls showed a bigger uh, Democratic win in, in the latest polls. So, that volatility curve, it needs certainty. You know, it's now investors and analysts are starting to increasingly price in the Democratic win. So that is clearly showing in the volatility curve right now. The VIX uh, of the VIX, the so-called volatility of volatility index, is now actually near the lowest level since February. So since that time when the uh, huge sell-off began. So that is telling us that investors are, yes, indeed, pricing in volatility, but not to a, such a big extent as it was um, several months ago. That's fascinating. It's really, really fascinating. And just the uh, two minutes that I have left with you, uh, tell me about just how the you, – you mentioned this earlier. You said that the reopening stocks are, are doing better. What are they looking at? Because with all due respect – I'm looking at, not to you, but to just the, the notion of it, Elena Pop, and 
I, I'm looking, Poppy, I, I'm looking at the numbers in New York, the numbers in D.C., what's they're doing in Europe. What are they seeing that, I'm, that, that the Johns Hopkins people aren't seeing? Yeah, well, investors are looking at a kind of slightly different perspective, Kevin. So they are looking at, you know, whether we're going to see another lockdown or not. And, you know, chances are high that we aren't. Yes, you know, New York is in a fragile situation at this point moment, especially with certain pockets in Queens and in Brooklyn, seeing a spike in cases. But investors are looking at all the stay-at-home stocks being overpriced at this point versus the, you know, um, reopening stocks, the so-called value stocks, you know, the airlines of the world, the car makers of the world, being, you know, underappreciated and could be potentially mm. a good buying opportunity right now. What one hedge fund manager told me the other day was that he he was looking for a more the, more of an even you know, exposure to the markets. You know, the things are really overbought right now. Ooh. Technology stocks are really crowded right now. So yeah. what if there is a huge rotation after election? We have no idea what's going to happen. Have no idea. Yeah, so, it's going to yeah, be fascinating, maybe, and plus, and plus, all the antitrust developments coming out of Washington as it relates to that. Elena Papina, I gotta leave it there. Elena Papina, thank you so much uh, for your time, and we'll talk more about the Fang stocks and uh, quadruple witching ahead of Halloween. How's that for a dad joke? Bloomberg Equity Markets reporter Elena Papina. My name is Kevin Cerulli. More coming up next on Politics Policy. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Will they or won't they have a debate in Miami? Plus a complete recap of last night's presidential debate. All of that as new allegations about a, a, a kidnapping for Governor Whitmer of Michigan. We're gonna get the. We're gonna go right to Detroit, Michigan, where my colleague uh, David Welch is the Bloomberg Detroit bureau chief. He's gonna walk us through a crazy, crazy news story. And will there be stimulus for the airlines? So much news to get through. Let's take the first part of the program before we talk about Michigan, before we talk about stimulus and the airlines, and let's talk about the debates because so much volatility coming uh, from. Uh, both of the campaigns and the debate commission, and let's just go through it. Last night at what really was a well-received debate 
by the public here in Salt Lake City between Vice President Mike Pence and Senator Kamala Harris. And when I say well-received, what I mean is it was much more akin to debates that we're all used to uh, in terms of people you know, giving their positions and not talking over one another and, and respecting the rules. Literally this morning, the debate commission releases a two-paragraph statement that says next week's debate in Miami, presidential debate, will be virtual. President Trump then calls in to Fox Business's Maria Bartiroma and says that he is not going to participate in a virtual debate, saying that that would be a waste of time. Joe Biden comes out and his campaigner says at first that they were, were unsure, but they were still planning to move ahead with the debates. Then we learn from the Biden campaign that they say, no, he's going to take questions from voters that night. And then the Trump campaign says they want to have it a week later. And it's, you know, that's, that's where things stand. Uh, to put it into context, I, I would note just being here in Salt Lake City and being uh, the luxury in, in terms of being able to do socially distant interviews and with, with, uh, uh, with uh, members of the respective campaigns is that this is very much a strategic decision on behalf of both the campaigns. From Based upon my reporting, from the sources that I talk with on Trump world, what they're saying is this is a base election for them. They want to turn out their base. Uh, as Rick Rennell told me yesterday, they want to turn red districts blood red and to, to amplify the turnout of conservative districts. And so this type of strategy by continuing to question whether institutions, and in this case, political institutions, are against not just President Trump, but their supporters, uh, this, this falls into that political playbook. In contrast, the Biden campaign, uh, they say that they want to continue to try to, to make uh, a, a rhetorical type of argument as it relates to the soul of the country, as Biden continuously talks about. And so talking to voters, as opposed to participating in the debate, is uh you know part of that playbook so it's it's really remarkable um and as rick davis told me in the last half hour it also raises questions about how campaigns interact not just with one another but with the debate commission itself i'm so incredibly grateful to welcome uh to the show our panel, uh, former Florida Congressman Patrick Murphy, who represented Florida's 18th congressional district as a Democrat from 2013 to 2017, and former Ohio Republican Congressman Jim Renacci, who represented Ohio's 16th congressional district from 2011 to 2019. I, I, I really appreciate the time because now that you guys are out of office, I feel like you're more chatty, to be candid. Um, I'll start with you, Patrick. Is it I, I don't want to go into too much of the punditry, but just from a strategic standpoint, describe to me the dynamic of the triangular relationship between the two respective campaigns today and the debate commission. You know, I, I can't say I, I understand both sides entirely and, and why they're posturing the way they are. Um, I, it's obviously all about, you know, changing the dynamics of the race at this point. You know, we are, what, 27 days away from the actual election. Millions of votes have already been cast. Uh, you look at the recent polling, and by all accounts, the Biden-Harris team are up, uh, you know, nine points on average. So Trump really needs to change the narrative, really needs to ch change the dynamic. Uh, I would think a debate would be an opportunity to do that, right? Maybe there's a potential gaffe. Maybe there's something to jump on, whatever that might be. So I was surprised to see them, you know, want to even delay this uh, at all. Um, 
But like you said, maybe it's, you know, more at this stage about just doubling down on your own base. And by doing a debate, you've got to try to appeal to, to the middle and not take certain positions. And maybe that's more dangerous at this point for them. You know, and, and Jim Renacci, I mean, I, I, I say this, if you're Senator Kamala Harris or Vice President Mike Pence, you might be you might be annoyed not just with the top of your respective ticket, but also the debate commission, because no one was talking about their debate. And I'm still in Salt Lake City. And I'm, I'm like, was there a debate last night? Everyone's talking about the, uh, the dynamics of, of, of what's going to happen next week and, and where we find ourselves, Jim. Well, I would agree, and uh, and uh, with a lot of what Patrick's saying, I, I will tell you that it, it's uh, it's about the last twenty days. It's getting people out to vote. Uh, President Trump does best in a live debate format. He wants that. I'm sure that uh, his first thoughts were, you know what, I'm not going to, I don't want to do a virtual debate. I want a live debate. I want to be on stage. That's where he shines the best. Um, on the reverse side, I'm not sure that Vice President Biden shines as well um, on a live stage. So there is posturing as we get through these last 20 plus days to try and come up with the best solution to get out the vote. But like I've been saying, 90, I think we're almost down to 95 percent of the people know who they're voting for. You know, it's now just a small percentage. And it's how do you win those 5 percent or 6 percent over? Because in the long run, I think people have already made their decision. They, you, you, you know what you have with President Trump and you know somewhat what you have with uh, Vice President Biden. as He's been there for 42 years and you have these two camps, one being we don't like the establishment, the other being fully establishment uh, when you come to Vice President Biden. And I think that's where President Trump shines, is to be able to show in a live debate, we need to be able to, he needs to be able to talk about those things. And he doesn't want to be cut off either. Well, I'm sure a virtual debate will be cutting him off. Well, you know, and, and, I, and I, I say, I've been saying this repeatedly because I also think it's one of the rare opportunities that Americans have to see the nominees for their respective parties to be under the pressure. I mean, so much of what we see, and this is not a criticism of President Trump or Vice President Joe Biden. It's just a, 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 the nature of the time that we find ourselves in. So much of what we see of our, of our elected leaders in these settings is, is controlled. And so it's, I think that voters do deserve to see a debate, several debates, to see how they will handle pressure moments. And also, I also think they deserve to see, even if they know who they're voting for and they're not going to vote for the other person on the stage, they still deserve to, to understand the policies and, and the way in which they are pitching those policies, not just uh, to Americans, but around the world. I think they deserve to see that. And so that's why I, I hope that there is a debate because I think it, it's still a worthwhile American tradition. Uh, coming up on the program, the panel is going to stay. Please stay because I do want to talk about the policy of last night's debate, especially on the U.S.-China front. And we've got a lot to talk about but with my colleague David Weston, who had a great interview today, uh, a newsworthy interview with Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. Uh, it was a ping pong back and forth between her as well as President Trump on the airline industry. So I'll, I'll talk about that as well. But coming up next, we're going to head to Detroit, Michigan, because the Governor Whitmer uh, is, is, has found herself in a really remarkable, horrific story, and the Bloomberg bureau chief there is going to, to weigh in with us. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg TV and radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. 
Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Uh, a completely wild, wild story out of uh, Michigan, the, the battleground state of Michigan, and pertaining to Governor Whitmer, Gre- Governor Gretchen Whit- Whitmer, who's been on this program. Uh, I've interviewed her. And at one point, she was actually uh, also uh, the, on, the, on the short list for Joe Biden's vice presidential pick there's a kidnapping story out of michigan 13 people were charged in a plot to kidnap michigan governor gretchen whitmer i want to take it to the nbc 25 news affiliate uh and fox 66 out of uh mid michigan because I'm going to read from Heartland, Michigan, their byline, quote, the FBI says they have stopped a plot to violently overthrow the government and kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. According to court documents, the alleged plot involved reaching out to members of a Michigan militia. Take a listen to what Governor Whitmer said at a press conference earlier today. Here she is. Hate groups heard the president's words not as a rebuke, but as a rallying cry. It's a call to action. She was alluding to a tweet that the president tweeted out, uh, just uh, has tweeted out uh, with regards to Michigan. Joining us now is my colleague, uh, David Welch, who is the Bloomberg Detroit Bureau Chief. David, thank you so much for making the time on what I know has been just such a crazy, crazy day for you. Uh, incredible coverage coming from, from your bureau. Just what do we know tonight about this? And then tell us about the politics of it. Yes, we know quite a bit. So the the FBI working with Michigan State Police um, and uh, the Justice Department. At first, they told us they arrested six people uh, and charged them with the kidnapping plot. And then there are seven others who are charged with uh, a handful of felonies, including terrorism charges. And they were uh, targeting law enforcement agents, other members of government. Uh, they didn't say exactly for what, either for violent acts or potential kidnapping, um, and with some plot to overthrow the state government. Uh, they were all, they've all been caught. They're all being charged. And uh, we're, the one thing we don't know is, and they've said nothing about this, is are there more people out there in on this conspiracy or with these groups? Because they, the seven who were charged were uh, part of a militia called Wolverine Watchmen. So we, we don't know how big that group is. Okay, what really do we know? Because I got 
I got to jump, jump in here. I mean, this, I've never heard of the Wolverine Watchmen, and, and I didn't know that there were militia groups in the United States. I mean, this is, I think for many people, myself included, I mean, I don't want to, maybe I should have known, but I, I, what do we know about this group? What do we know about these networks? What do we know about what the FBI, how they found this group? I mean, it is, it's just, it's so perplexing and wild. But so can you, can you just give us some details on what we've learned in the documents? So there are a lot of militia groups in the U.S., actually, and quite a number in Michigan. Uh, they do tend to be uh, far-right-wing extremist groups. In this case, with, with the FBI had found some of these posts on social media, particularly on Facebook, and they also uh, they found that the group had code words. They also had an encrypted means of communication that the government was able to tap into. They also, they, they did have somebody who I think blew the whistle on this group. And the plot apparently was to, uh, they, they had Governor Whitmer's vacation home under surveillance. And the plot was to set up explosives that would create a diversion for police in that area. And then they would move to her home and, and kidnap the governor. Wow. Wow. Yes. So what's the, what's the reaction? Been... Go ahead. As you say, it's it's just a, a really bizarre and crazy thing uh, to to see in our country. I, I don't, I, I can't recall any U.S. leader in any state being kidnapped. So what were they about in Brazil and Mexico? Yeah, what were they going to do? Like, what was their actual plan? David Welch, Bloomberg, uh, uh, Detroit bureau chief. Like, what, what, what? How did they think this was going to work? That's really unclear. What the governor said in her remarks was that there was a plot to kidnap and possibly kill her. And some of the traffic they found uh, did say things like, you know, once we get the governor, it's over. As in, you know, this would, what some of these right-wing groups have called her reign of terror uh, would be over if they got her, and I would assume got her out of the picture. Uh, you know, when, when she said that potentially kill her. I, I, I take her seriously on that. I think she's probably been briefed in much greater detail than we have. All right. And now what's the response been? And, and we've got to talk about the, the politics of this, uh, just given, you know, uh, what the governor has said. And, and, and obviously, uh, you know, so what do we know about how politically this is being interpreted? So Whitmer, uh, in her comments this afternoon, she put a lot of the blame on Trump. She said that uh, over the past seven months, he has uh, challenged scientists. He has fomented hate groups and hate speech and created an environment where these kind of groups feel emboldened to do things like march on the Michigan State House with weapons like they did uh, this past spring and uh, to hatch this plot that, that was against the governor. She, she's putting a lot of it squarely on President Trump. And what do we know about, uh, politically speaking, what, what are the polls telling us about Michigan? Obviously, it's a battleground state. Obviously, it's a state that the president carried in 2016. What are the polls telling us about uh, where, how Michigan is playing uh, ahead, of, uh, ahead of the 2020 election? So Biden's been leading here for quite a while. Trump did win it in 2016, but uh, Biden's been ahead for a while, and uh, it... it I, I would never call any state a lock for him. Predict that, that Joe Biden will win the state, but hey, a lot can happen between now 
and Election Day. But uh, it, it's, it's been going pretty well for Joe Biden so far. All right, David Welch, thank you so much for, for calling in and on, on what I know has been an incredibly, incredibly busy day for you. Uh, he is leading our team's coverage uh, from the Detroit, Michigan Bureau. This, of course, is a, a, a major story. Uh, the FBI arresting um, more than 10 individuals in connection with plotting to kidnap the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer. Wow. All right, coming up on the program, we're going to dive into the policy of last night's vice presidential uh, debate. Uh, download the Bloomberg Sound Off podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. This is Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cerulli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. I've got two former lawmakers with me, the best in the biz from two battleground states, Ohio, Florida. Jim Renacci is with us. He is a former Republican lawmaker. And Patrick Murphy, a Democratic lawmaker of Florida. All right, let's dive headfirst into where I still am, Salt Lake City, the beautiful Salt Lake City, as we uh, dissect... No, not that fly. We dissect the policy issues pertaining to last night's debate. Take a listen to the two candidates, Vice President Mike Pence and Senator Kamala Harris, on trade policy. Here, take a listen to some of their exchange. Here it is. The president's trade war with China. You lost that trade war. You lost it. What ended up happening is because of a so-called trade war with China, America lost 300,000 manufacturing jobs. Farmers have experienced bankruptcy. Lost the trade war with China. Joe Biden never fought it. Joe Biden has been a cheerleader for communist China through over the last several decades. That was just one of the many, many fiery exchanges between uh, Senator Harris as well as Vice President Pence. I want to ask the panel first and foremost about China. Uh, And and Patrick, I'll start with you. I, I didn't really hear... A clear, I, I, I think both, well, I want to be careful. What, what did Senator Harris tell us about how Joe Biden would handle China in last night's debate? <laughs> well, I think you started to say the answer to your own question there. <laughs> I think both candidates uh, were more focused on pointing a finger and trying to get a punchline. Okay. Right? And something that's going to be played on the news. And not really you know me so well, Patrick Murphy. The ne- next steps <laughs> are going to be. And, you know, look, the truth is it's hard to have that intellectual debate on any issue if you have a two-minute answer on something as complex as trade policy with China, for example. And I think, you know, most people, uh, you know, listening to the show understand that this is something that dates back decades, right? And it's really easy to point a finger at this person or that. There's a much more, you know, a macro conversation needs to be had here about this. I wish the candidates would have both spoken about, hey, in the next three, in the next four years, here's what our goals are. Here's how we're either, you know, Trump would, you know, Pence, Say, here's what we plan to do to, to, to make it better. Here's how we want to improve trade, et cetera. And, and by the same token, uh, I wish uh, Kamala would, would have dove into that a little bit more and talked about Joe Biden's plan um, and, and why it hasn't worked thus far, uh, whether they want to get back into TPP or they have a different idea. But let's talk about that. Um, but I think you started to answer the question. It's more about finger pointing now. Well, yeah, and Jim, come in here, because I think in terms of what we've seen, how the, the, the Trump campaign has, has tried to discuss 
uh, China, it, it, they, they point to familial relationships of, of the Biden campaign, and they, they talk about NAFTA, they talk about USMCA and whatnot. Uh, but, but specifically on trade policy, I, I don't know. I, I thought it was – I was surprised that that didn't come up more, but I thought that exchange was, was a pointed one. Well, again, agreeing with Patrick, that's exactly – these are political points. These are debates, two-minute uh, gotcha moments. But really has happened, though, is over the last 30 years we've lost the battle with China. Both Republican and Democrat administrations have continued to let China uh, grow their economic power base for years. And I think that's the real issue. So I think when Kamala Harris said, you know, the Trump administration has lost the battle and when the Vice President Pence said, hey, you guys uh, lost it when, Ob- you know, when Obama and uh, uh, he were uh, president and vice president, I think they're, those were just sound bites because actually uh, this has been a 30-year process. We, we have lost significant ground. And China continues to do the things that are necessary to, uh, to find a path to economic power. And, and the United States does need to be careful. And as Patrick said, I wish there would have been both would have laid out their plans uh, for what we're going to do with China in the near future. I thought it was interesting in terms of the economic front how Senator Harris said that one of the first things that President Biden would do would be to repeal the Republican tax plan. Of course, the Biden administration would increase the corporate tax rate from 21 percent to 28 percent. They say that they would also increase uh, infrastructure spending. Uh, and and so it's, it's, it's we did get some more nuanced policy uh, last night. OK, let's talk about the covid response, because this was another heated moment in last night's vice presidential debate. Take a listen uh, to, to this heated moment between Senator Harris as well as Vice President Pence over the pandemic response. Here it is. They knew what was happening and they didn't tell you. When I look at their plan that talks about advancing testing, creating new PPE, developing a vaccine. Um, It looks a little bit like plagiarism. You respect the American people when you tell them the truth. You respect the American people when you have the courage to be a leader speaking of those things that you may not want people to hear, but they need to hear so they can protect themselves. The reality is that we're going to have a vaccine, Senator, in record time in unheard of time, in less than a year. The fact that you continue to undermine public confidence in a vaccine, if the vaccine emerges during the Trump administration, I think is is unconscionable. I think our editors who who put that together did an incredible job uh, because it it really illustrates the... The, the perspectives of both of uh, the narratives that both sides are telling Jim, does it not? I mean, I mean, truly, I think right there you have one side saying that lives were lost and another side saying that lives w- were saved. And it's, it's, it's so incredibly intense, but that's that, those are the two narratives on the collision course, Jim. Well, absolutely. And, and both of them are right. Lives were lost and lives were saved. And I'm not sure that anybody in, in any administration could have done much different. This was a pandemic that started in China. I think the president has done certain things well. I think he may have not, inf- like Camilla, one of the things I disagree with her, and I'd love to see her someday in a, in a uh, of course, I would never vote for her on this, but in a presidential position, finding out something, and the first thing she does is run on TV and tells everybody that doesn't happen. What normally happens is you get all the information, you gather it up, you determine what the, the path is, you make some decisions, and then you tell the American people, here's what we know, here's 
here's what we're doing. Here's how we're, that's what leadership is. Leadership isn't running to the microphone. So a little disappointed she started out that way because I don't think she would do that if she was president. And I think in the end, um, both of them are trying to gain some ground. Again, it's politics. I wrote a book about it. It's, uh, I, I talk about it all the time. These, this is political theater within 20 days, and both of them are trying to make their points. But as I've said, I don't believe anyone could saw this coming, could have seen it coming, and could have reacted any differently than what was done with President Trump. And I do believe that, uh, you know, if there was a Democrat in the office, he, he or she would have done the exact same thing as best as they could with the information they have. All right, go ahead, Patrick. I mean, I mean, from, from your perspective, in terms of the, the COVID response, and, and, and how, how effective were Senator Harris and Vice President Pence in, in, in convincing, well, in, in, in selling their, the top of the tickets, uh, criticisms and uh, responses to the COVID-19? Well, of course, uh, Senator Harris was in a, a much stronger position here, right? Um, you know, you look just look at public polling and, and the sentiment of the country and really the world for how they're, they're viewing America's handling of this. And she was in a much stronger position. So just from a tactical standpoint, uh, she, it was easier for her to be the aggressor at this. Senator uh, uh, Vice President Pence was in, was in a, actually a pretty tough position, not only just looking at the numbers, uh, but also just with this recent outbreak at the White House is now, you know, a hot spot. Um, that's a tough record to defend. Uh, the United States has, what, 5% of the, the world's population and, you know, over 20% of the cases. So the, the numbers mm-hmm. don't lie. Uh, I, you know, I'd push back a little bit to, to Jim's point there, um, you know, about the handling of this. There are other countries that have done a much better job of, right. of managing this. And all there's right. all sorts of nuances but, you know, I, I do believe that uh, Kamala and Democrats have a great case to be made here of how they would have done a better job of handling this and navigating right. uh, through the economy. All right. Panel stays. Coming up next, we're going to talk about what's on my radar, which is uh, the airline industry and whether or not there's going to be a package for the airline industry. And we'll check in with what's on Jim and Patrick's radar as well. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg TV and radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Earlier today, my colleague David Weston spoke with Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi about negotiations on the airline aid bill. This is President Trump and Secretary Mnuchin are trying to move forward on some type of package, $25 billion worth for airline industry relief. Airline industry CEOs are saying that they might unfortunately have to lay more, lay off more people uh, if they don't get aid. Take a listen to what Speaker Pelosi told David Weston. Here she is. We want to help the airline workers. There is legislation that we had in the CARES Act, which we hope that we could continue for another six months or so that expired the end of September. We can do that separately, but we cannot do it unless there's a big bill. So it could be part of a big bill or it could be separate from a big bill from a timing standpoint. This is the thing that's on my radar today, folks, because I'm going to ask Patrick Murphy and Jim Renacci, our panelists for the hour, uh, former, former lawmakers, a Democrat of Florida and a Republican of Ohio, respectively, what's on their radar. But 
Take a listen to what else she had to say to David Weston, just in terms of, well, here she is. I'll let her explain. It was very strange, really surprising, and I'm rarely surprised when the president took to the tweet and saying that he wants the Senate to have full focus on this confirmation of the uh, justice and turned attention away. And so we're stopping the negotiations. He'll do anything in his power uh, to overturn the Affordable Care Act. It's just interesting. Just to, I think it illustrates, and it was a great question by, by David Weston, it, it, it illustrates just the um, just how the strategy that President Trump is using, whether or not it works, we don't know, caught so many people off guard, including the Speaker of the House, when he tweeted out the other day uh, that the fiscal stimulus negotiations were done. Jim Renacci, is this a good move or a bad move? Good strategy, bad strategy on behalf of President Trump on fiscal stimulus? Jim? Patrick? Jim? Patrick, are you there? There's Patrick. I'll just jump in. I, yeah, thank you. I think it's a it's uh, it's silly policy. That doesn't make any sense just from a political standpoint either. Uh, bad policy and bad politics here. Uh, I, I think the president should have pushed for something, even if it was not exactly what he what he wanted, and then done a lap and, and celebrated and said, "Hey, look what I just did, America! I'm continuing to help you," and and taking credit for it, right? Even if it wasn't all his doing. Uh, and then let Democrats fight for their share of the credit. But to single-handedly walk away and say, I'm not doing it, um, heck, at least try to blame Nancy Pelosi or, the, you know, whatever he's going to say, crazy Democrats or, you know, come up with something, uh, instead yeah. of just single-handedly walking away, to me, doesn't make political sense either. Jim Bernacci, I heard through the grapevine that you accidentally hit your mute button. Just so folks know, I do not have a mute button for my guests. Jim, was this a good strategy or bad strategy? That's the second dad joke that I've made during this program. Well, um, go ahead. Is this good or bad strategy? What's interesting is I was speaking. I gave you an answer, but uh, you never heard it, so I'll have to repeat it again. Uh, and it's, it, what I said was, look, this is President Trump's strategy, and, and uh, Donald Trump um, negotiates like Donald Trump negotiates. I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm not saying I disagree with it. Success, you always look back at after the fact, not before the fact. Do I think um, he wants to get a bill? Yes, I do. Do I think Nancy Pelosi wants to get a bill? Yes, I do. Do I think uh, each of them negotiates in a certain way? Yes, and uh, she seems to want to blame him, and uh, he seems to want to blame her. In the end, the only people who lose, in many cases, the American people. But this is his strategy. It's worked for him in the past. He's going to continue to use it. Um, and, uh, look, we've, he's had a lot of successes over the last three and a half years. Uh, if you take COVID out of the picture, and I think those successes are coming from uh, President Trump being President Trump. All right. Now, Jim, Patrick, it's time for you to tell me. What's on your radar? Patrick Murphy, what's on your radar? I'm just waiting for the <laughs> October surprise. I, I oh, my gosh. What, what, what do you I want? I mean, it's not even – are you kidding me? I feel like I haven't slept in five years, and you're telling me that you want another October surprise. Go ahead. There's just got to be something. I mean, uh, I don't understand the tactics. Again, forget the policy just from a, a political standpoint. So curious what's coming. But, you know, like, bigger picture, you know, when you're in these races, uh, whether you're running for mayor or Congress or president, especially when you're talking about the last 30, 60 days, you want to control the narrative, right? And the question is, how many days did your campaign get to control that narrative versus your opponent? And 
you know, maybe I'm biased here, but it sure seems that Vice President Biden and Kamala Harris have really controlled the narrative for the last 30 days. Uh, curious if that continues. And there seems to be just, you know, uh, self-inflicted wounds by Trump and his team day after day here, where those that don't follow politics day to day like we might uh, got to just be scratching their head here and, and making this decision easier and easier for those few that are undecided at this point. Here's what Patrick Murphy's not going to tell you. Is he's, but if this gets too crazy, he's going to be on a boat fishing and saying, you know what? It was good talking <laughs> politics, <laughs> but I'm down in Florida where it's sunny and warm. And yeah, no, Patrick, that's a great point. Great point. Jim Renacy, what's on your radar? Well, it's interesting. I, I would just uh, say after listening to Patrick that I don't care what either of them does over the next 20 days. 95% <laughs> of the people have already made their decision. And it's really going to come down to those 5% who are just trying to decide. And, and I'm not sure how they haven't made that decision yet. But I will tell you what uh, hit my radar today was the information that the U.S. budget deficit hit a record of $3.1 oh. trillion. And, I'm, you know, right now that's 15% of the U.S. economy. It's the highest deficit in history. We used to complain about President Obama's uh, administration. And again, Republicans used to blame President Obama. Democrats want to blame President Trump. Really, the purse strings are in the Congress. They're the ones that control what's spent. But $3.1 trillion deficit, a record. I was reading that today, and I thought, in 2010, we were complaining that our debt was $10 trillion, and now we're heading to $30 trillion, and nobody seems to be talking about it. You know, it is remarkable, and I, I, I got to be honest, no one is talking about it at all, uh, especially right now, and, and it's just not even a factor in this election. I, I have a, 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 just a hint that I think in the, next, uh, in the next cycle, if we recover, when we recover, when we recover, I'm an optimist, when we recover, uh, that, that the conservatives will start to – um, we'll start to, to talk about that, talk about that much more. All right. Uh, my sincere, sincere gratitude to, uh, Patrick Murphy, who, uh, is always so generous with his time on the show, as is Jim Renacy. Hey, Jim, have we got any updates in terms of, uh, what the NFL is going to be doing with all this coronavirus stuff? Well, I know one thing. they got to play games to make money, and I think that's always going to be the key. And you got to get, as I've said in the past on your show, you got to get butts in the seats uh, yeah. so you get the sponsorship dollars. And, uh, I, well, I you got to think... get you got to get tests outside of the gates. That's what I think. And not just at the, for the NFL. On the halls of Congress, outside of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, I just find that remarkably fascinating. Go ahead. I interrupted you. I didn't mean to. No, but I'm thinking it just comes down to, I mean, even when you talked about the airlines and look, the only way the airlines are going to survive, we can give stimulus. But if we don't get people flying again and we don't eliminate the fear and we don't get through this virus, the airlines, you can stimulate and put money toward them for the next six months to a year. But there still is a fear of flying. There still is a fear of going to that NFL game. And we got to get that fear gone. we got to get back to normalization. Yeah. Um, that's going to be the greatest stimulus. All right, all right. My thanks to Patrick. My thanks to Jim. Uh, and speaking of flying, I got to go because I got to catch a flight from Salt Lake to Washington, D.C., and I cannot miss it. Uh, but I will be back in D.C. tomorrow. It's been one week since the news broke tonight of Hope Hicks, our Jennifer Jacobs breaking that news, of Hope Hicks uh, getting COVID-19, and then, of course, the developments of last Friday of the president uh, saying that he got COVID-19. Just one week in American politics. And think, folks. 
of all that's happened. I'm Kevin Cirilli. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Appreciate it as always. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.